Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome once again. I, I always, I do enjoy always hearing the warm chatter and conversation between our guests. It's one of the privileges is to be able to host you all and to have everyone come together and enjoy one another's company. Uh, a warm welcome again to you all, and I would ask you to now join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers. This event will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come, and I'd also like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, and VVC for live streaming today's event. Again, my name is Danny Asaf, and I have the honour of serving as the President of the Canadian Club of Toronto this season and the privilege of being your host this afternoon. For over 119 years, the Canadian Club has been proud to provide this closely guarded, non-partisan platform for the free and open exchange of ideas that are important to us all. Through our programs and events, including our youth and young leaders programs, our diversity partnerships, our events like today, and our media and social media opportunities, we are proud again to provide you access to influential political, business, and social figures from abroad and, of course, right here at home. And before I formally introduce our event and award, our Lifetime Achievement Award, if I may ask you for just a small indulgence to tell, indulgence to tell you a little bit about of our, a couple of our upcoming uh, exciting events. On June 2nd, we'll be hosting the Honorable Brian Pallister, the Premier of Manitoba, and he will be at our podium to speak about his government's plan uh, for the future of the province's uh, course. And on June 7th, we're also proud to host Patrick Brown, the leader of the PC Party of Ontario, who will join us to outline his party's policy platform. To order tickets or, more, or learn more about our events, please visit us at canadianclub.org and you can also join the conversation via Twitter at CDNCLBTO. I would like to take a moment also to thank our uh, sponsors, our event sponsor, KPMG, and thank them for their general, generous support. I'd like to take an opportunity to thank our sponsors as a non-profit organization with a history of 119 years. That support is critical to us being able to provide you with these programs and events. And I also would like to take an opportunity to reiterate our thanks to Air Canada, the official airline sponsor of the Canadian Club of Toronto. Now, today we are here to celebrate a great Canadian and to award him the Lifetime Achievement Award of 2000, for 2015 on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto. And this story and this event is important for a few reasons. Number one, it's important to celebrate our own and to hear these stories and to be able to learn from them and to think about, again, what will inspire us into the future. And it is a Canadian story. And that's, to some extent, the cliché. We hear that all the time. But I was reflecting on this day. I was thinking, well, why is that particularly true today? And there were actually a few things that came to mind. Number one, Mr. Sharp is an example of a good person who finished first. Number two, he's a person through his business and his personal dealings has always relied on the golden rule 
to succeed. Treat others as you would like to be treated. Number three, his story is common to many of us, myself included, the son of immigrants to Canada who worked hard and attained the top, the absolute top echelon of his profession. Fourth, he also used his business in many ways to build cultural and social bridges to other countries and other people. And lastly, when he did all of this, he still took time to take what he had of his resources of every kind to give back to our own community to make it better. And to me, that is the quintessential Canadian story. And then we talk about the accomplishments of Four Seasons. And we all look for examples. Today, the world, global, can we have Canadian leaders in multiple countries, 41 countries, as a matter of fact, for Four Seasons, a $4 billion company with more than 100 hotels and many, many more on the way. So as we look to the future and think, can we do it? We have great examples, including what Mr. Sharp has done and what is currently being done by the great team at Four Seasons. And then we look at, and I just made a couple of quick notes, as to what he has garnered in terms of praise from around the business community and elsewhere. And just a few quotes I'll just share with you. Peter Monk quoted saying, no one in our generation has established a global brand so totally identified with unquestioned quality as Izzy Sharp. Rick Waugh, former president and CEO of Scotiabank. Izzy Sharp of one of Canada's greatest business success stories. Success that's been achieved on a global scale and recognized throughout the world. He's the living example of what a business leader can and should be. And lastly, Gordon Nixon, former president and CEO of RBC, with humility, humor, intelligence, innovation, and ambition, ambition, Izzy Sharp dared to take on the biggest by being the best. Today, his legacy is clearly not just a global chain of fine hotels with an impeccable brand, but a pioneering approach to business that always puts people first. And then, lastly, to think about some of the accolades and recognitions that inspire us all on a global scale. He has been awarded the Woodrow Wilson Award for Corporate Citizenship, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in 2013, induction into the British Travel Industry Hall of Fame in 2013, the International Horatio Alger Award, Horatio Alger Association of Distinguished Americans 2013, and then something close to my heart as a lawyer, an honorary Doctor of Law degree by the University of Ontario in 1994. So I feel like I'm in good company, and I know we have great representatives of Ryerson University with both Marcy Ian and, and, uh, and Mr. Sharp are also alumnus of this great Toronto institution. And then finally, his leadership in philanthropy. And just to name a few, both he and his wife have supported the arts, educational institutions, and healthcare, including some of the most well-known landmarks in this town, the Four Seasons Centre for the Performing Arts, the Ontario College of Art and Design, Mount Sinai Hospital, and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, just to name a few. And also, 
his impact on intrarational research on cancer as, and the work of his family, including founding, uh, co-founding and founding the Terry Fox Run, which we see globally and here in Canada again as another icon of philanthropy and how we can all make a difference in our everyday lives. And we are also fortunate here today that Marcy Ian, the co-host, one of our most well-known commentators and newscasters, is here to moderate what will be a fascinating discussion. And on that note, I would like to take this opportunity to ask Mr. Sharp to join me on stage for our award ceremony. So, Mr. Sharp, as I said, this is something that we are proud of our history. We are proud of our current ability to be able to attract wonderful people like you and present this award as an inspiration and example to us all. Mr. Sharp, pleased to award you the 2015 Lifetime Achievement Award on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto. Please, say a few words if you This is a tough act to follow when somebody is so eloquently described. But, uh, but thank you. Thank you, Tony, uh, for that very kind uh, introduction. Um, and I truly appreciate the honor you do me today. Uh, and I'm very proud uh, to be part of such an esteemed group of leaders. Uh, and, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming. I've just got a few notes here, and then we're going to sit with Marcy and have an open conversation. Now, I know the essentials for success are well known to all. Uh, perseverance, hard work, um, a concentration on a core, a clear goal, a belief, and, of course, uh, enjoying what you're doing. But I believe the most essential element that underwrites all elements, uh, all aspects of success, is ethics. But unfortunately, there are those who say ethics in business is peripheral, uh, if not irrelevant. But that has not been my experience. Because for me, a business agreement is more than a legal contract. It's a relationship rooted in trust. And trust is the emotional capital of a company. It's the precondition for workplace cooperation, communication, and control. It's crucial to customer loyalty, and it rises or falls with our ethical reputation, the unseen but decisive factor in most business transactions. And so I would like to express my gratitude to my parents who taught me the power of ethics, to my colleagues who confirm my belief in trust, and most of all, to my wife, Rosalie, my unfailing helpmate for 60 years.
may those who are just starting out have such luck and also an understated facet of success. So on behalf of all our people who did things right, but more important, did the right thing, I gratefully accept this award. And again, thank you for this most distinctive accolade. Thank you. Thank you. So polite. You're so polite. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I just am. I said, "Is Izzy Sharp? Are you kidding? Are you kidding me?" Are you ready, ladies and gentlemen? I, they gave us 30 minutes, and they said you're you're allowed to have questions and answers. And I said, "Sure." And then Izzy and I spoke a couple days ago quickly on the telephone, and, and now I don't think I'm giving you your Q&A because I'm going to need all the time. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll think about that. We'll, we'll get there. I think, Izzy, if you're really going to know who a person is and understand who they are, then you need to know where they came from. And that means family. And that means your parents and, and what they went through in their journey. So can you tell us a little bit about them? We only have a half an hour. I know. <laughs> See what I mean? We're in trouble already. We're already in trouble. Well, um, I think, uh, like, coming from an immigrant household, I think it's a, you know, it's a blessing that not everybody has. And I grew up with three sisters. I have two of them here today. Uh, and two parents um, who, uh, you know, came to this country with nothing. Um, got married. It was actually an arranged marriage, but uh, my mother didn't quite accept that. She's that type of person, uh, and she wouldn't have any part of it, but my dad won her over. <laughs> so it was a marriage that um, the honeymoon never ended. And if you hear the expression, um, you know, tough love, yeah. well, that was my mom's side of it. The family, because she did, she ran the family. She did, told you, and you did everything she asked. My dad, on the other hand, was very soft-spoken, never raised his voice or his hand to any of us. But he only had to tell us once. So my sisters and I were very fortunate to have two parents that allowed us to become who we are. They were too busy working to read stories or tell us what to do. We grew up in the streets. And that's like most immigrant households at that time. So fortunately, um, whatever we set out to do, um, they were there when needed, um, but allowed us to become and gave us the, I guess, you know, we're all born with our DNA of who we are, the genes, etc. So is it nurture or nature that makes us who we are? And I think it's a combination of both. So fortunately, we grew up in a household that gave us the values and principles that allowed us to become who we are. Uh, and then we each have our own skills. And yeah. if you are fortunate enough that they, in those early years, support you in those things you want to do, it lets you take that next step forward. So I think we are fortunate in having uh, grown up in a household with not much other than love. 
But that's everything, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Love is everything. So I'm going to fast forward quickly to, to 1961, okay? I, I know that you graduated from Ryerson, mm-hmm. architecture. Yep. Yeah. And so you went to work with At your... At that time, it wasn't a university. It was a tech, technical school. It so. was a technical school yeah. still. You went to work with your dad. But here's, here's the important thing here. Uh, worked with your dad... But, and, and we're going to talk about fate and chance, because you ended up being involved in a business deal, and I'll say a seedy part of Toronto, right? Seedy part of Toronto, a, a hotel deal, and that kind of changed the trajectory. Tell us about that, 1961 Toronto and that deal that went down. Well, I think um, life is, you know, much of our lives are circumscribed by what I would call chance events you know, situations you run into. So I'm a builder by trade. Mm -hmm. You know, my job in a hotel business is, you know, peeling potatoes or, you know, serving uh, as a busboy. So I was fortunate enough in building a small motel for a friend, uh, which is nothing more than, to me, that was just a job. But I was surprised by its success. So I looked at what he was able to do in the middle of nowhere on a limited access highway on the outskirts of Toronto, and he and his wife were you know, making, a, 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 making a good living out of this. So I decided if it worked there, wouldn't that idea sort of be better if you tried to do it downtown? So I took the concept of what was the idea of what a hotel offered at a motel and set out to make that happen. And you're right, you mentioned it was 1961 that that came to fruition. Mm-hmm. But it was 1955 when I started. Mm-hmm. And that was my nighttime job, because I'm still struggling to make a living. We got married and had four kids, so we are not looking to make money out of this deal. And we had many rejections and uh, skepticism. What kept you going through that when someone says, no? Or you can't? I I think what happens in life, um, when there's a belief in an idea and that spark doesn't go out, you see what can be done and you just don't understand why other people don't see it. Mm -hmm. Now, look, I started and, you know, one week turned to a month, turned to a year, turned into many. If I would have thought then that was going to take me five years, I would have stopped after the first one, because <laughs> I'm still making a living. But you don't. You really just see, hey, I think I've got it. I think now I think I can get people to buy into it. Um, so the first one opened. Luckily, it was a success, because uh, it was all borrowed money. And um, tried a second, the, uh, then a third. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. One, two, three. But there's certain, well, there's a certain philosophy that you have. There is the hiring of people, specific people. Mm-hmm. There is that whole idea of treating people as you would want to be treated. As Danny mentioned, that's important. That's paramount. And, and that's the crux of the success. It is. That's really uh, the foundation that's being built so solidly that it's allowed the company to become what it is. That one simple principle 
because uh, it's, un it's a universal principle that is understood by all. It's the first rights of human. It's, it's the first of human rights. Um, and years back, when we started talking about this, I asked Rosie, I said, find out who were the scribes? Where did this, who were the people that made this happen? I mean, we take it for granted, we hear about the golden rule and we just automatically think of what it is. And she did some research and came back and showed me a list of the 10 religions worldwide that in each of their scriptures was the principle of the golden rule. So it's a universally belief system that is understood by all. And that's why when you know, we are able to go anywhere in the world and bring people together from that local community, because every time we open a hotel, most of the people are hired from that local community. And our principle of hiring, which is a lengthy process for every individual, going through four or five interviews, and the last one would be with the general manager of a hotel. It's more for attitude rather than aptitude. And we're able to bring people together that they in turn embody the principles. You don't need a list of rules. It's just we expect you to behave in a manner which is responsible enough for the position you've got and trust people to do their job. So it's that belief system that has given Four Seasons a sustainable competitive advantage and literally, to coin Warren Buffett's expression, a barrier to entry that allows us to preserve this position. And as I was mentioning, as we have gotten bigger, we have gotten better and as we will continue to get much bigger, we will become that much better. And that's something special, because really, when you look at corporate structure or businesses these days, when, when the businesses get bigger, a lot of the time, the quality goes down. Bigger isn't usually better. Bigger means that, that there will be failings now, because there are too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. You've had the ability to empower your employees. Yep. For them, working for the Four Seasons is much more than just collecting a paycheck. Yes. They find meaning in their job and a purpose. And the reason I say we know we can do this is because that's the way the company got to where we are. Years back, the first hotel, it was easy to talk to everybody, and we knew what we were doing, and we set out at that point that the same first principle of this company was to only operate medium-sized hotels of exceptional quality and to be the best. Well, that meant that the people who worked in that hotel, be it the first hotel or the tenth, it was up to them to make that hotel the best. So as we started, that was what we did. And as the company slowly started to grow, and we had five, seven, eight, and used to visit hotels and have town hall meetings. And the question would always come up, Mr. Sharp, how many more hotels can we do with this fanatical attention to every detail and concern about every customer? And I said, I don't know. But if the last hotel 
doesn't embody everything we've learned and therefore it should be better. I, I said, that'll be it. Because I wasn't interested in getting big, I was interested in becoming good. Well, I used to say that, answer that question, whether it's at five, seven, eight, ten, fifteen 15 hotels. Same question, same answer. I did not know. But then I did know. It had nothing to do with the number of hotels. It had to do with how we opened those hotels and ran those hotels. That it was up to the general manager, his senior people, the planning committee, and everybody else below them who are there 24-7, they're the ones that will continue to make this company what it is. That was the way we started. And it's the way we just opened our, I think our 99th hotel in Dubai. Same message, exactly the same. It is in your hands. Yes, we have people who are regional vice presidents, area presidents, but they're there to assist. They're the corporate structure to assist, support. But it's the people who are there 24-7 who've been hired to run that hotel if they can't do it, we can't. And that's why I say we keep getting better because each hotel, we learn from the past, we embody that, which makes the next one a little bit better. And it's an endless amount. Today we're 100, we've got you know, almost 30 hotels under construction. We will become 150, 200, 250. And the product is continuing to improve, and our people are energized to never lose that best of class. You have mentored many. Who mentored you? I think my wife, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I never really had what you normally are calling in business, you know, somebody who would give you guidance, et cetera. So, as I say, my dad was hardworking, uh, you know, immigrant. So, but I have looked up to people in terms of uh, respect and, you know, follow and be guided by them. And the people that I mention when this question is asked, I look to those people who were prepared to join the military in time of war. Because those people were prepared to put their principles on the line for what they truly believed. And that concept of looking up to people who stood by their principles, regardless of the circumstances, are the ones that sort of gave me guidance. That I think that, you know, we can all be fair weather friends. It's very easy when things are going good to be good to everybody. But how do you behave when things are going south, when things aren't going well? What what do you do then? And that's the only time your principles are really tested. So I think it's living up to what you believe, and that's why to do the right thing, which is more important than to do things right. It takes courage to do the right thing sometimes. It always does. Yeah. 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 Not sometimes, always. You're right. Yeah. Do you consider yourself courageous? 
Uh, I would like to think of myself, but I, I don't know if we ever know until we're tested how we would act. What has been your biggest test in business thus far? Well, you know, businesses, uh, you know, plans don't always work out. I think I could probably write a book again more about what didn't work than what mm -hmm. did on the thing. So, you know, you've gained by those. And I've always believed, you know, business is risk. So it's not always something that's going to work out. And you try to measure that risk and avoid taking what I would call a destructive mistake, that which you can't recover from. You know, that expression I use do not risk that which you cannot afford to lose. So that sort of gives you some guidance. But we've run into very difficult times. Fortunately, I was able to use those experiences to move the company in a direction which has made us successful. Um, and one was in Vancouver where we were you know, when you, build, when you start a company, you build a hotel, you own it, you run it. So all the initial hotels, we own the real estate. So we were really in the real estate business. But as I learned from a very uh, difficult experience, um, that can cause you trouble if you haven't got the capital to do it. So that happened in, back in mid-70s and they're building a hotel in Vancouver. Um, it just went out of sight. And that would have finished the company because we just didn't have the wherewithal the capital. But fortunately, my partners agreed if I would live up to what my commitment was to finish the hotel. So I borrowed money I didn't have, uh, lived up to that. They then agreed to make the deal work on a handshake. On a handshake? On a handshake. And had they not, we wouldn't be sitting here talking, I can tell you that now. <laughs> uh, Another one, which I think probably is more meaningful because it gave me, it really taught me how to manage my financial affairs a little bit better, is to not get into, the only time businesses get into trouble is when they have a financial problem, that they can't live up to that obligation and therefore things cause them to change their business, etc. So you all remember back in 1981, 80, interest rates went up to, 10, 20, 22%. Mm -hmm. And the banks, of course, I owed them a lot of money, and they called me in and said, you know, what works at 10 doesn't work at 20. And I said, of course not. You know, that's a, an unproductive cost, and we have no way of dealing with it. So he said, what are you going to do about it? I said, I got a plan. And that is that I need you to lend me more money <laughs> to, cover, to cover this interest. And uh, at that time, he became president of the company eventually, uh, Gord Bell. He said, are you crazy? He said, you're asking me to go to the board. He said, firstly, now you can't even afford the money I've already lent you. I said, I know, but this is a blip. You know it. It's going to come back down. It's just a question of time. And so over that period of time, if you can cover the interest, we will get through this. So, of course, my lawyers and accountants said, don't do it. They don't. They can't run the company. This is just, they're playing hardball because they asked me to pledge everything I owned. Hmm. My stock, my house, my wife. So, <laughs> uh, and, and I said, look, I, look, I'm not borrowing the money. It's the company. He said, I know, but you're telling me not to worry. It's going to work. So why are you worried? So, of course, my accountant said, don't do it. 
They have no choice. They're going to have to keep you alive. But I did do it. Because I did believe that we would get through it. And on one condition, if we financially could manage to get through this time. So my deal was I would give him everything, providing he agreed to continue to lend me money until the markets recovered. And if he would agree with that, I would pledge everything. So I did. It's a heck of a deal. But it's a good deal. Mm. Because now I've got a banker who is going to make sure that I have Stay afloat. Access. Yeah. So really, was it a risk? Maybe. But I did believe that the company had a great future and that this interest factor was not going to be something that was going to be there forever. Do you believe in fate? When you look at your journey and how you've gotten to this point, do you think, okay, I had a lot of meetings, chance meetings, you know, did this hotel, motel for a friend, and then had this good <laughs> idea about hiring good people and this whole philosophy, and here I am. Because easily there are a lot of people who have big dreams and they don't attain them. Do you believe in fate? Or is it just hard work? Or is it I lots don't, of I luck? Don't, I don't think it's fate. I just think it's, um, you see an opportunity and you have a subliminal belief. It's not something you're trying to convince yourself with. You really believe it. You say, I, 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 this will work. It's just a question of how do we get other people to buy into it. So if you have a true belief in something, it gives you an ability to communicate that vision. And people buy into it. And then if people do buy into it, it makes it work. So it's that type and relationship of, you know, having something that you believe is worthwhile working for. Um, and um, so I don't think it's faith as much as, um, uh, you know, a belief and not concerned about whether failure is a part of our lives. It, it has to be. I've always said if you're always right, you're wrong. Because you've taken too narrow, you're on that middle of the road, you're not sort of taking a chance to step off and see what might happen. So I've had the, as I said, the support uh, along the way. And that's what I mentioned. Um, because none of us, they, that, the phrase a self-made man is a myth. We all get to where we are through the support that we get along the way. And you mentioned about my parents and it starts there and it starts all the way along in terms of your path through any journey. And you do come to that fork in the road. Um, and your ability to decide yeah. which one to take is going to lead you into what I said, that chance event. It would be enough that you are who you are, a business icon, a Canadian legend. That would be good. That, that's fine. But then there's that philanthropic side. And that's what I love so much. Because you've got a big heart, you and Rosalie do, and you give back in such a tangible, tangible way. Tell me how you came to know Terry Fox. 
Well, that was um, an important part of our life that I had, like most people, heard of this young man deciding to run across Canada on one leg. And like most people, I you know, just was in awe of this. So I, at that time, asked a young lady in our marketing department, Bev Norris, I said, Bev, fly out and just see what's happening. Is this for real? So she did, and every couple of weeks she'd go back and came back and a devastating report saying it's terrible. Um, nobody believes them. Their cars are almost running them off the road. They all think it's a, some kind of gimmick that he's after a promotion because who can run across Canada on one leg? So um, I decided we would do something about it. And we took out an ad in the newspaper and the magazines, and we agreed that we would uh, donate, if he got from across Canada, we would donate $10,000. And I invited in this ad 999 other companies to join me and make this a $10 million run. Terry heard about it, and he called me, and that was the first time I had spoken to him. And in a voice that was breaking up, said he was just going to throw in the towel. It was humiliating of the way people were treating him. But if one person cares enough, I'll go for it. And that started a momentum that got him to where he is. So that was a conversation of him. When he came to Toronto, we held a luncheon of about 400 people had him speak, and my greatest mistake was not taping that speech. He was speaking to an audience that was so quiet that he was flicking a paperclip in his hand that you heard. It was compelling. And while he was in Toronto, we finally met. And I said, Terry, this is more than you ever thought it would be. This is a world event. When you get to Vancouver, this is going to be something you should prepare for now. And he was a very mature young man, and he said, um, no, I don't, want to, I don't want to think about that. I thought then that he knew he wasn't going to make it. It was just, you know, he was running with pain. He was running against doctor's orders. And it was shortly thereafter that he had to quit up in Thunder Bay. So that was by connection of hearing about it, deciding I would try to help. And then when he no longer could run and he stopped, I sent him a telegram saying that we'll carry on in his name something. And having spoken to him after that, he agreed with the idea that we would hold an annual Terry Fox run, but not as a competition, but only a run that would include families, young and old, um, to raise money for cancer research, very specifically. Um, and that was 35 years ago. And today that Terry Fox run is run in over 50 countries worldwide. And it has raised over $700 million for cancer research. Guess what? 
30 minutes has gone by. <laughs> I said it just like that, and I, I want another two and a half hours, but I can't have it. You are amazing. What a pleasure to be sitting beside you today. Thank you for being so gracious and allowing me to ask whatever I wanted to ask. Uh, we so appreciate you. As a Canadian, I salute you. We, we salute you. And, Thank you. and thanks for being you and representing us so well. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jennifer Sloan. I'm the immediate past president of the Canadian Club of Toronto and currently the vice president of public policy at MasterCard. And it's on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto, I'd like to thank Mr. Sharp for offering us a glimpse of your life's work. The scope and range of your contribution to the hospitality and tourism industry is legendary. Your brand, the Four Seasons, conjures up positive images of what travel and leisure should be about, providing guests with superlative service that leaves lasting impressions. Your philanthropic work is also legendary. Your contributions to community causes embody the spirit of the award that you have just received. For example, it really is hard to imagine a world without the Terry Fox run. The run has done much to advance cancer research globally. We are indebted to you for creating such a lasting legacy. Mr. Sharp, please accept our best wishes for your ongoing efforts to make our world a better place to live in, whether it's through the experiences provided by the Four Seasons or the numerous causes you support. And to you, Marcy. Your television broadcast leadership is appreciated by millions of viewers across the country and by our audience today. We thank you both for having such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you again, ladies and gentlemen, and just it's my job now to thank you all for coming. Thank you for uh, Mr. Sharp for joining us to allow us to celebrate, for inspiring us and motivating us for a better tomorrow. This meeting is now adjourned. Have a good afternoon. <laughs>